This is Smarter Cars, a podcast about autonomous vehicles. This is the finish line. The Stanford Racing Team has made its way into the history books. But the most important thing for me is, uh, it actually doesn't matter who comes first. It matters that we as a, as a community achieve it. Early in a technology, uh, a thousand flowers should bloom. Welcome to Smarter Cars. This is your host, Michelle Kairouz. Our guest today is Regina Clulo. She's a leading transportation researcher on shared mobility and autonomous vehicles. She received her PhD from MIT in transportation systems and has served as a research scientist at UC Berkeley, Stanford, and UC Davis. Regina, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Great. So you've been doing uh, research in the transportation space for a long time. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and experience in this area? Sure. Um, so I was a transportation a research student at MIT, uh, did my PhD there in transportation systems, and then afterwards was a postdoctoral scholar at UC Berkeley, where I was working on regional modeling for the Bay Area. Uh, I then was a research scientist at Stanford for two years, where most of my work focused on shared mobility and autonomous vehicles. And uh, my main affiliation now in academia is at UC Davis, where I'm a research affiliate. Great. I've also spent a little bit of time in the private sector, uh, where I was at Ride Scout, a company that was acquired by Daimler Automotive um, mm-hmm. and rebranded as Mobile. Great. So you recently uh, authored a UC Davis study uh, regarding rideshare services and the impact on transportation in cities. And uh, I was wondering if you could start by describing the study, what cities you were looking at and time periods and, and what you were looking to measure. Sure. Um, so the study was focused on gathering new data and information about ride hailing services um, adoption rates, who are the demographics of the people who have used these services, what are the main reasons they use them, um, and then what are the impacts on travel behavior. And we surveyed over 4,000 people um, in seven major U.S. cities between 2014 and 2016 um, with a targeted representative sample of their urban and suburban populations. Great. What were some of the cities that were included in the study? Um, so we made, we focused mostly on major U.S. cities. Uh, the cities that were included were Boston, Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, Seattle, and Washington, D.C. And so when you uh, talk about kind of representative sampling between cities and, and suburban users, um, how should we think about that? Maybe taking San Francisco as a, an example, were you um, interviewing folks in the city as well as in the suburbs, or how did that work? Yep, we were. So we covered both urban neighborhoods as well as suburban neighborhoods, and the sample that I collected um, was specifically designed to match the distributions of the region uh, by age, income, gender, uh, and then also the reported distributions of the population in the urban and suburban neighborhoods. Right. So um, I'd like to go through some of the the findings of your study, which is is super interesting. Um, 
Maybe starting with uh, your findings concerning who is using these ride-hailing service uh, services, you know, Uber, Lyft, what, what types of people uh, in this time period that you were looking at? Yeah, so we found results that were, you know, not that um, su surprising necessarily. There were a couple of other studies that had come out prior, one most notably by Pew, um, that found somewhat similar results. Um, and what we found is that the adoption rate among the college educated um, and also those with a higher annual household income um, is about double of those who don't have a college degree um, and who have a household income of about 35000 or less. Uh, so somewhere around 25 to 33% of those in that upper echelon with regard to education and income adopt versus around 13 to 15% of those who don't. Um, and then also there's clear um, skew towards younger individuals who are using these services. Um, right. Those who are over the age of 70, virtually you know, none of that population uses right healing yet. And it, what is the correlation there between having a smartphone and using the service? I mean, I can see, um, you know, higher income folks using rideshare because of the cost today. Um, is it also, do you think, correlated with smartphone use? Um, I doubt it. Um, that wasn't a specific question that we asked in the survey. However, if you look at other um, surveys of smartphone adoption, um, they, they are pretty widely <laughs> pro proliferated across all ages and, and particularly income um, groups, it's really hard to not buy a smartphone these days. Yeah, it. I, I, I guess with the older demographic, I could see perhaps, you know, being less fluent in smartphone, but I certainly agree that across all incomes, we're seeing um, pretty wide smartphone adoption. Yeah. So, um, when, I know you've given some thought to um, what will happen when we have autonomous vehicles and these autonomous taxi services providing these a similar ride-hailing service but with an autonomous vehicle. Um, is it your view that the demographics would change uh, in that context where there were very cheap uh, autonomous taxi rides available that it's in essence largely driven by cost here? Yeah, if, if the cost were to come down substantially, I definitely think that larger segments of the population would be able to afford those services. Um, I think that's still a question mark. We don't know what the, the typical cost per mile will be for those services. Um, but yeah, clearly if they're, if they're cheaper, then more people will be able to access them. Right. Okay. Um, one of your uh, findings in the study uh, was concerning personal vehicle ownership. And I think you were looking at the impact that use of, of ride-hailing services might have on whether people owned a car or two cars or whether they were willing to get rid of a car once they had access to ride-hailing services. Can you tell us a little bit about what the findings were in that area? Sure. So they're a little bit complex. Um, 
folks are welcome to read the report and see the different ways I've defined household vehicle ownership and personal vehicle ownership. Um, but what I did find um, is that when looking at personal vehicle ownership and household vehicle ownership, so an individual, for instance, who might not own the car themselves but has a family member who does, um, the the rates of household vehicle ownership aren't all that different um, between individuals who use ride-hailing and individuals who don't. Um, the really big differentiation that determines whether or not someone owns the vehicle or not is typically whether or not they use transit and are located in a really dense urban area where parking is difficult um, to find and or very expensive. Um, that being said, I did find some evidence that people were shedding vehicles, um, so getting rid of either the second vehicle or their only vehicle after they started using ride-hailing services. So 9% of people responded that they had uh, reduced their vehicle ownership. And are you saying that that was more likely to be the case for folks who live in dense urban areas and in the suburbs? I think there's a very strong correlation between um, the issue of parking and availability of parking. Um, I, one of the key takeaways, though, um, from my study is that the increase in vehicle shedding, so getting rid of a vehicle, was also correlated with increased use of ride hailing. Um, so for city planners and those who are concerned about vehicle miles traveled, um, I think a key takeaway is it doesn't really matter who's driving the vehicle or who owns the vehicle. Um, what matters is how many miles are we putting on roads. Yeah. So um, let, let's let's talk about vehicle miles travel because I do think that's a question that folks have about ride hailing services and whether the availability of Uber and Lyft, you know, increases the number of trips taken in cars or, or total vehicle miles traveled or VMT. Um, what types of data did you gather on that, and and what do you think it it shows? Um, so I gathered a couple of different data points. Um, the really the most important item, though, is asking individuals whether if Uber and Lyft were unavailable, what transportation alternatives would they have used for the trips that they made? Um, and a fairly large portion of people said that they would make fewer trips. So um, there's definitely a certain level of induced demand uh, mm -hmm. that these services have have brought on because they're so convenient. Um, but there was another significant portion of walking, biking, um, and trips that were made by transit that also were being substituted uh, by Uber and Lyft trips. And so the net difference, I believe, in terms of VMT um, suggests that even if you account for the drive-alone trips that were replaced um, directionally, VMT appears to be going up. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess I have a little bit of a question about the statistics around sort of number of trips that would not have happened but for rideshare and, and this question of directionally are, you know, do we have more VMT with the availability of ride hailing? Um, the total VMT number it seems to be a little bit broad in the sense that um, it seems like you might need to 
parse it further by where people are traveling, for what purpose or what time of day. And so I was interested in your study, you listed out the, the top reasons that people were using ride hailing services. And if I'm right, I think they were to go to bars and parties, restaurants and cafes, family and community and shops and services. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, that's what I found. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I'm just wondering, those seem to me to be social activities and activities that maybe wouldn't necessarily be occurring um, during a workday commute traffic hour. And so the, the question I had is, you know, is total VMT a relevant number or does it matter, you know, kind of when and where those those trips are happening? So they both matter. And it kind of depends on what question the, you know, who you are, from what perspective you're, you're looking at the issue. So as a transportation planner who might need to account for, you know, actual miles on the road and what kind of impact that has on infrastructure, or if you're concerned about the energy use and climate emissions of the transportation sector, um, um, all miles matter, regardless of when they're occurring. Right. Um, but if you're an individual, uh, you know, who is concerned about congestion and traffic, uh, then, yeah, when those miles occur um, really impacts whether or not they're causing traffic. Right. Um, when you were asking folks, you know, what the reasons for using ride hailing uh, were, was commuting to work an option that they could check or or identify? I'm just wondering if if the, your study asked people about whether they're using ride hailing services as a way to get to work. Was that a choice, or whether there's any data that you've gathered that would give us a sense for how many of these additional trips are actually kind of commuter workday trips versus? you know, Friday night going out to a bar? Um, I do have some data that shows when, whether people were using it for work trips. Um, but the way that the fresh, the questions were phrased, we're trying to get at the most frequent reasons for use. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that in a future study, I'm definitely going to look into this issue more, but my hypothesis is people use them mostly for getting to the airport, traveling um, when they're in another city, uh, going, getting back from uh, a bar or a restaurant, um, social activity late at night. Um, however, they have the occasional use to um, use them to get to work because they're running late and maybe the subway or transit trip that they would have normally taken would take them twice or a fraction longer and so they decide to take them work but it's a kind of an occasional use situation that anecdotally that's what I've seen you know in in San Francisco anyway and so I was just curious about about that um some of the headlines reporting on your study um drew kind of a straight line between um you know you're finding that trips were being taken that wouldn't otherwise be taken in a car, the induced demand point, and kind of drew a straight line to, therefore, commute traffic is increasing because of rideshare. And 
I was just wondering if you think that's a fair interpretation of the data or do you think there's more parsing that needs to be done to really understand that? Well, I think one of the big challenges is that I don't have time of day um, use within my study. But that being said, for any trip that's being shifted from transit or biking or walking or not being made at all that's shifted to ride-hailing services um, is resulting in an increase in VMT. And although I think distributionally, most of those trips are indeed probably occurring during off-peak hours, Mm -hmm. there's definitely some portion of them that are occurring during peak hours. Mm -hmm. Um, So based on that, although I can't get into specifics with my data, I would guess that they are contributing to traffic. Maybe they're not the sole reason um, that traffic might be increasing. I mean, most of it is driven by population growth and economics, but but um, there's probably a small sliver that can be attributed to them in terms of growth. Right. Um, it, it seems like the focus on total VMT, as you point out, is is sort of relevant for certain purposes, but that these you know, slicing and dicing it about time of day and location, you know, might be helpful in in parsing the commute traffic issues. Um, the other thing that occurred to me about total VMT is, you know, one of the big benefits that people talk about with autonomous vehicles and ultimately the available of kind of very cheap autonomous taxis is this idea of mobility for everyone, that regardless of age or disability or ability to drive or income, that really autonomous vehicles can bring the convenience and mobility of a car to a much greater group of people. And that in and of itself sounds like more VMT overall. Um, But it also seems to have a a social value of mobility equity um, and social and economic value of people being able to do things they couldn't do before, whether it's an elderly person who has some independence and can take a trip to CVS to get a prescription, or whether it's young people feeling like they can go out and spend dollars in the city Uh, going to bars and restaurants on a Friday night because there's a way to get home, whereas before there wasn't. Um, Those seem like there's kind of social and economic value, even if it's potentially more total VMT. And so I was just wondering, as as a transportation researcher, uh, how do you think about balancing uh, those different aspects of uh, mobility? Sure, yeah, that, I mean, that's a great question. And I think even based on the data that I've found, clearly there are a lot of social and economic benefits associated with ride-hailing and people using them to um, probably patronize more restaurants and services <laughs> in their cities as a result. Um, and But the... And I, and I think that, all, and as you mentioned, there are you know, other populations that are going to hopefully have access to these services if they're affordable, um, and they can help provide equitable um, transportation services for a greater swath of the population. Um, I think that one of the really big challenges is balancing um, you know, the growth in these types of services in a way that is 
equitable um, and can serve the needs of a greater portion of the population versus, you know, just those who are extremely wealthy um, and do so in a way that hopefully we can also provide more sustainable transportation for, for people as populations grow. Um, and that's and that's a challenge. Um, I think most studies that have looked at increased access through autonomous vehicle services for um, underserved populations do show that, yes, we'll probably see a pretty significant growth in vehicle miles traveled. Um, and so transportation planners and those who are concerned about energy use um, just need to plan for that. Right. I mean, it seems to me, you know, if you are an hourly wage worker, perhaps working at a, a hotel late at night, um, getting off a shift at one in the morning, and, you know, there is not a public bus that can conveniently and safely, you know, get you home, and you could take an autonomous taxi for, you know, and get there much quicker that really does generate economic activity and, and allow people at all income levels to um, even just get to work and get home from work, um, in addition to the other going out to bars and restaurants and other, other fun stuff people are doing. So it seems like there would be some real value to that and that it may not contribute to commute traffic necessarily if it's, you know, nights and weekends and, and other things. So. Um, what kind of data would you need as a researcher to be able to um, to sort of look at these issues um, more specifically? Um, as you point out, it is this balance where, you know, you don't want every single person who, you know, could otherwise easily ride a bus in the morning to work to be in an individual uh, autonomous vehicle. Uh, but at the same time, you don't want to make autonomous vehicles more expensive so that grandma can't go to CVS to get her prescription. Um, and so there's, it seems like there's some balancing there. What, what kind of data would be most helpful for cities and researchers in trying to understand this? Um, well, I tried to generate quite a bit of new data around who the individuals are using these types of services and for what purposes. Um, I think that transportation planners need more of this type of data, but um, I also think that in trying to find ways to meet the needs that you described, so for instance, the hourly worker who gets off in the middle of the night and, and needs a convenient, more convenient trip home, um, those are sort of the use cases that we need probably need to develop pilots around to figure out if there is a sustainable way for these services um, to help fill the need for those populations. Because I suspect that they're not currently. Um, a $3 bus ride is <laughs> a lot more affordable than a $30 Uber home mm -hmm. uh, in the middle of the night. So so I know that a lot of transit agencies are experimenting with pilots with ride-hailing services um, really to try to identify whether there are specific use cases where as a transit agency, it might make sense, for instance, for them to outsource some of their services uh, right. to private companies um, and subsidize those fares. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and you know, the economics, as you point out, could change dramatically with autonomous vehicles where the $30 Uber ride might, might be $3. Um, so I guess we'll, that, that will be something that, that could become more of a possibility. 
what information do you think that cities and researchers need from private companies or um, other sort of data that could be collected that would help in this uh, goal of trying to uh, figure out the best way to move people around the city? That's a great question. I mean, I think that for the past four or five years, I've been suggesting that we need um, more data sharing <laughs> between the public and private sector. Um, but increasingly, one of the challenges is that the private sector has a much greater volume of data on how people are moving within a city. Uh, and so there's this growing gap, really, between uh, the private sector mobility providers and those in the public sector who are trying to make infrastructure decisions and policy decisions um, and long-range decisions that um, have increasingly increasing uncertainty uh, in where they're essentially operating in the blind. Um, so there are a lot of different data sources that could be shared that would help cities um, better plan for the future. And, and I think that there are going to be some new ways for those private sector companies to share them going forward. Yeah. And do you think that having some sort of a, a third party system where someone is, you know, anonymizing and, and collecting all of this data from both cities and private transportation services is something that would be uh, feasible or a direction that that people should go versus, you know, the information going directly to the government? Or how do you think about about data flow? Um, I think that one of the big challenges is that oftentimes cities want essentially all of the data that mm -hmm. private mobility <laughs> companies have uh, within their city. Um, and they kind of get to this point where they're unable to move forward because the cities are requesting all of the data. The private sector mobility providers don't want to provide all of the data. Um, they just want to provide aggregate analyses to answer certain questions. Um, so I think there probably are going to be opportunities for third parties to help facilitate the sharing of data and information. Um, and one of the really big challenges is that on the public sector side, um, there really aren't the resources to um, support the sort of technical capabilities to harvest and, and utilize all of that data in an effective way. Right. Let's uh, talk a little bit about public transit, because I do think that's implicated by the data discussion as well. Um, I know in your report, you had some findings about people who use ride-hailing services and how that impacted uh, the rides that they took on public transit. Can you describe uh, specifically what those findings were? Sure. So I asked people about their changes in transit use, biking and walking, um, after the adoption of ride-hailing services. Um, and what I found, because I segmented by different types of modes, is that there was a pretty significant portion of individuals who indicated that they reduced their public bus use, which is probably not that surprising. Um, and then also urban light rail saw a reduction, uh, whereas suburban commuter rail um, saw a slight net increase in use after individuals started using right-handling services. So it wasn't cut and dry, but what I did find is that there are overall were more people who had said that they reduced their transit use versus those who increased it. 
Yeah, I, I thought it was a really interesting dichotomy between transit um, within a city, like a city bus or light rail, versus a commuter rail. And just so people understand that distinction, um, I'm going to use a San Francisco example. So commuter rail might be something like Caltrain coming from Silicon Valley into San Francisco or BART coming from the East Bay um, under the bay into San Francisco. And then um, the city buses are in light rail that you're referring to. That would be use of like a muni bus or, or muni light rail. Yeah, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, what do you think is the difference there? In other words, why do you think that uh, ride-hailing use is a better substitute or a easier substitute for people to make for a city bus versus commuter rail? Why was there a greater impact there? Um, well, it's hard to really say based on the data. It's, it's still somewhat limited, but um, what most people would like to see um, are these services serving first and last mile trips. And so there's some evidence that for commuter rail, um, they might be effective at serving those first and last mile trips. Um, when it comes to public bus and urban light rail, I think that what trips people might be substituting are the ones that we kind of talk, discussed earlier, which is I'm an individual who's late for work. Um, I'll hop in an Uber <laughs> lift instead to get to work. And so that would be a trip that I personally would have made on a bus instead of in a car. Right. The um, from a policy planning perspective, um, what? How do you feel about the difference between city buses and commuter rail? I mean, maybe this is just my San Francisco uh, perspective, but in San Francisco, because we have a bay, they're kind of these. Um, access points into the city from the north, from the east, and from the south that have limited uh, access in. There's, you know, a bridge with it only has so many lanes, or there's, you know, freeways that only have so many lanes. And so um, it seems like it's really important for those limited access uh, travel uh, lanes that people are on uh, a train or a bus simply because there is no way to increase, even if you wanted to, you know, to increase uh, car traffic. It, it is kind of a choke point. So that to me seems like a, an important point to, you know, uh, support the use of uh, commuter rail and that those commuter rail services are kind of really hard to replace. Uh, whereas within the city, it seems a little bit more fluid, like you might take an Uber on one road, you know, and there's plenty of other roads to get someplace within the city. So it's not as much of a limited access point. And so it, it seems like things are a little more fluid within the city and that the use of rideshare there um, might not be as, um, problematic with respect to traffic. And does that does that make sense, or how else should we think about the difference between city transit and, and commuter rail access? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the region. Um, but, you know, a lot of places, including the Bay Area, as you indicated, have these choke points. <laughs> we have the bridges yeah. <laughs> um, or maybe one, one or two main freeways that come into the city. Um, and those clearly are very congested um, and have limited capacity. But I think if you even look at within the city, um, I mean, San Francisco is a relatively small city, uh, and there's really only so much infrastructure. If you took away all of our public buses and put everyone in Ubers, even if they were in Uber pools, you'd see a very nightmarish traffic situation. (laughs) Right. But it is funny because – you wouldn't necessarily go the same direction. I, I always think, you know, if you um, if you took people off the bus, and I agree, it would definitely be more traffic if, you know, you had 50 people each in their own, you know, vehicles. Um, but you might, you know, you might have walked three blocks to get to that bus route, whereas if you were taking an Uber from your house, you may have gone a different way, a different direction. So I guess I feel like within the city, there's a little bit more flexibility to create different pathways. Um, and so it, I guess it doesn't surprise me that people would substitute Uber for a muni bus to get to work or to a restaurant because um, it's less painful than if they had to sit in traffic on the Bay Bridge, you know, trying to come a, a you know, much greater distance. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think it's interesting because I've done this. I've actually clocked my time from <laughs> where I live in the city downtown and I've done Uber, Uber pool, Lyft, Lyft Line and, and Muni. And mm-hmm. I live on a main bus route uh and when i'm on a rapid it takes me about the same amount of time um in muni versus um in an uber uber pool and uber pool and left line often take significantly more time right (laughs) that's interesting so if if you were advising a public transit agency um what what do you suggest what would you suggest that they start doing now to prepare for autonomous vehicles in terms of you know what they would do to their own services perhaps city buses um as well as some ways to think about policy for uh controlling the flow of traffic for autonomous uh you know ride hailing and and taxi services Um, Well, I think a lot of cities are beginning to experiment um, with some really interesting pilots. Um, And if you even take autonomous completely out of the equation um, and just think about shared mobility, there are a lot of opportunities for cities and those services to collaborate with one another. So, um, you know, they're exploring shared services for paratransit, which can be very expensive for cities to, to pay for it. Um, as well as late night service, uh, potential first and last mile solutions where they might have park and ride stations that are completely um, over overutilized um, and have long wait lists of thousands <laughs> of people who would like to have parking spots. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a lot of specific use cases that transit agencies are exploring to essentially outsource to shared mobility providers, which is great. Um, and I think one of the big challenges is 
determining how to continue to invest in continued transit um, where it makes sense to move large volumes of people. Um, so in San Francisco, you've probably seen they've um, implemented bus priority lanes, uh, which are only for buses and, and taxis. Um, and I think you'll see more cities starting to implement essentially this policy around how people utilize street space and curb space um, that can improve the flow of traffic and is safer for everyone. Right. Some people have talked about congestion pricing and perhaps mm-hmm. curb pricing. Um, and, you know, it, it, that's not something we've had in cities, you know, unlike, you know, London and some other places. Uh, it's not something we, we've had here. So it's kind of hard for, for people to understand, you know, how much would that cost or what would that look like? Um it it seems a little bit of a mixed bag in the sense that, you know, to the extent there are some positive uses for, um, you know, autonomous rideshare, let's say supporting first mile, last mile, the point of, of that type of use in supporting public transit would be that you come off the Caltrain in San Francisco and then you take – um, some sort of autonomous taxi to your office downtown, if that becomes unreasonably expensive because there's congestion pricing or, or curb fees or what have you, then it, it kind of reduces the ability of people to use that as a, a reasonable um, alternative. And so um, I feel like there is some, um, you know, economic and social value to ride, to having rideshare and ultimately these uh, autonomous vehicles as well as um, a, a very positive use case for cities supporting transit, public transit. So how, how would one distinguish between the uses you want to encourage and, and the uses you don't? Um, it seems like uh, it's hard to draw those lines in a way that doesn't unfairly kind of tax and discourage um, uh, autonomous vehicles. Um, well, the example that you provided, I think there are technical and political ways to to address that that issue. So, for instance, if one were commute, trying to commute into San Francisco from somewhere in the south and we're trying to drive in a personal vehicle, they would incur presumably the same level of congestion charging and or maybe have really expensive parking that they'd have to pay in a city. So it might be cheaper to use Caltrain and then do a ride tail Uber pool into the city. Um, and one of the things cities could do is, for instance, offer um, discounts for transfers, which is what a lot of transit agencies already do. So, for instance, if you take BART to bus um, or Caltrain to bus, you, there are transfer discounts. So I think there are ways to get around those problems. Um, and one of the really interesting things I think about ride hailing services is that I think they've made people more amenable to the idea of paying as you go um, yes. and surge pricing, <laughs> even right. though they don't necessarily like it. They're more accustomed to the notion of surge pricing, which is right. essentially congestion pricing. Right, right. And, um, and you know, people have talked about, you know, with the vehicles becoming more electric and the gas tax um, not 
not being as relevant as as cars become electric going to some sort of vmt pricing just with respect to use of the roads generally um how do you think that kind of pricing would impact um rideshare or um you know autonomous taxi pricing um well it would clearly increase the pricing um i think most of the services themselves i think uber and lyft both have said that they're open to congestion pricing um I mean, by implementing surge pricing, philosophically, it's essentially the same thing. And at the end of the day, we need to find ways for people to be able to move in cities. And one of the best ways to help manage supply and demand is pricing. Yeah. Um, it, it, it It's hard to imagine the difficulty in trying to formulate uh, policies and and pricing levels and things like that not knowing what the impact will be so um what what do you recommend that city uh and transit policymakers do is is using um you know pilot program the best way i mean it's hard to experiment first of all obviously we don't have autonomous vehicles um in in big quantities today uh certainly not operating commercially um but how, how do you think folks can get the data and information they need in order to figure out uh, pricing or access or um, other ways to control the streets? Um, I think there are a number of cities that are beginning to explore um, pricing, particularly around tolling, for instance. Uh, going back to the issue of bridges, um, that's kind of one of the main places we see a lot of pricing uh, being necessary. And so there are, I think, a lot of opportunities within regions broadly, you know, not just necessarily in the city center, um, to begin experimenting with different pricing schemes. Um, and then also in the U.S. context, uh, I presume many transit agencies and cities are looking to international um, experiments or new policies that are marching forward, like in London, to see how that all plays out. Interesting. Um, are there um, were there other findings uh, from your study that you think we should know about that I haven't covered, or other kind of key takeaways that you had after you completed this project? Um, well, one of the other key takeaways that we kind of touched on briefly is, you know, a lot of individuals hope that these services and the future of autonomous vehicles can um, provide great service to older populations. Um, and right now, older populations have a clear technology gap um, in being able to utilize these services. So I think that's a challenge. Um, you know, the populations for whom these services could maybe provide the greatest benefits aren't really using them currently. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's a key opportunity going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today, Regina. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, it's been, been fun. Okay, take care. Thanks to Regina for joining us, and thanks to all of you for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and also leave us a review. You can find the show notes for this episode and our other episodes 
on our Smarter Cars publication at medium.com. Look forward to seeing you next time.